Hello, everyone, and welcome to Minute 67 of Season 5 of Move Around Minute, the daily podcast where we EPK our way through the 1990 Bruce Willis action film Die Hard 2 Die Harder, one minute at a time. I'm Rob, and joining me once again today is John from the Dirty Harry Minutes. Welcome back to the show, John. Thank you, Rob. Um, I'm really grateful I can join you. I couldn't join you for when Harry met Sally because, you know, I do Dirty Harry Minute podcast and i was it was too triggering for me i thought maybe it was some sort of fan fiction about dirty harry getting uh, and, um, mm. so i had to sit that one out <laughs> you know i never i never even thought about that hmm that's interesting that's very interesting and who who do you think sally would be then if it's fan fiction hmm. any any guess the only I'll, sally that comes to mind is, is sally kellerman i don't know why uh, i can't think of the <laughs> she's in mash right um yes yeah I don't know. The, the unfortunate universe of Dirty Harry is his his wife died in a motor car accident, so it's it's very sad. Maybe her name was Sally. Actually, I think in the novelization her name was Denise. But yeah, the, maybe they got that wrong. The least maybe it should have been maybe it should have yeah. been Sally. You know that that would have that actually would have been very funny if they if they chose those names because of Dirty Harry. That would that would have been great. Yeah. <laughs> so the big universe. So I'm glad that you're able to come to this movie and and discuss it with me without uh, you know having any preconceived notions about uh, it it being fan fiction. You know, again, this could be this could be John McLean fan fiction. You know, uh, it could be yeah. you know it could be that that uh, you know this is connected to um, I don't know the the Sixth Sense where the, you know the character there is having a dream sequence that he's. Uh, you know that he's John McQueen. It goes back to the whole to the whole you know fan theory that that Indiana Jones is basically a dream that Han Solo is, has when he's in in Frozen and Carbonite. So I don't know, could be. This could be a last minute sort of occurrence on an owl street. Uh, like Gruber is thinking this Hans Gruber when he's falling down slowly. This. This other scenario flashes through his 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 head before he meets the ground. It could be, maybe. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Actually, I would I would think if that was the case, then then I think that 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 Die Hard with a Vengeance would be more what what Hans Gruber would be thinking of because he would try to find a way to enact revenge on John McClane. Yes. Yeah. So brother, and when we get yeah. there in a few seasons from now, you know, you and I will try to remember that and and bring that up again. <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so minute 67 begins with the DOJ guy finishing a sentence and ends with Barnes giving a warning. So yesterday we ended things with John trying to get into an elevator, but a hand is held up by the DOJ guy, and he basically says to him, no civilians. And we get the last syllable of, of, that, uh, you know, of that sentence uh, today. Hmm. And, you know... Apparently, the DOJ guy doesn't want John involved, even though John's the only one who really has been helpful this entire time. But, you know, I guess it's bureaucracy. We don't want no John McClain. <laughs> no and, homers. No homers. <laughs> and then John looks over and is trying to get some help maybe from Trudeau. And Trudeau, like, has a look on his face. That he, you know, is sympathetic to what John's going through, and he wants to help him, but he does not believe that he can. You know, and then as the the, the elevator doors close, once again John is alone, which I think is great because 
you know, John McClain works much better on his own. You know, as much as you want to say that, that, that he's a team player, when, if you look in any of the movies, you know, past or present, you know, from what we're talking about right now, John McClane is always at his best when he is alone against the bad guy or against the situation. And, exactly. And that's one of the reasons why we love him. Canon. Yeah. Precisely. Right. I, I know this through, you know, through Dirty Harry. Um, you know, he can't really have a partner that lasts more than one movie. And, yeah, he's just got to be that loose cannon fighting the system and finding his unique um, solutions to problems. To seem, the answers seem pretty clear to him, but no one else can see that there are simple solutions. Mm. That's right. It's, it's the McLean solutions, I guess you can say. <laughs> yes. Um, because he, And he knows how to do it. And they, they know how to write for the character well enough that, you know, in, in at least the all you know the first three movies in the trilogy you know we we, we can definitely sympathize with john McClane with everything that he needs to do and how he's doing it and stuff like that so yeah I, I i like it i like the way that they do this so once again he's on his own and then uh we linger on him for a few seconds it's great that, that we can actually also see his his uh, shadow or reflection in the door of the elevator as it's closed also you know, mm. and and it, and there's like a little uh, golden hue around it. So maybe it's you know maybe they're trying to show that he's somewhat an, an angelic uh, figure or something like that. I don't I don't know if that's on purpose or or not. It just looks that way. And and then the the, the shot changes and we once again see the any plane any a plane flying, you know, in the sky. And there's there's silence for a few seconds and then we hear what the. F- <laughs> and we see that it's it's the it's the navigator. Okay, the navigator on on the any flight is is played actually by a very famous actor, uh, an actor by the name of uh, Tom Everett. Have you ever heard of him before or seen him in anything before? No, I'm drawing I'm drawing a blank. Tell me. Okay, so he's he's been in a, he has 123 credits in, on IMDb. Wow. Okay. The I'm, I'm trying to think of which ones, you know, which which of his credits are things that 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 are recognizable. But I mean, he he goes all the way back to 1977. You know, he was in his first role was in The Goodbye Girl, and then he was on a whole bunch of TV shows during during the course of the 80s. He was in Beverly Hills Cop in 1984. He played uh, you know a thief in in that movie. You know, uh, most of these most of these roles that he's had over his career are small roles. We're not talking about big roles, but but still. You know, and then uh, you know, here in this movie, he he plays the uh, the navigator. He was he was on two episodes of uh, Quantum Leap. Huh. He was he was in uh, Dances with Wolves. He had a role as as a sergeant named Sergeant Pepper. Um, what other what other things has he been in that 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 people might know him from? Uh, he was in Air Force One. He played the NSA advisor Jack Doherty. Oh, okay. Who I believe was one of the guys that was shot, you know, when they were killing when they were killing people one by one. I think they 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 killed him, if I remember correctly. Um, he was in the movie Thirteen Days, which is a big favorite of mine, uh, all about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, he played Walter Chardon in that movie. He was in That's Pearl Harbor. Costner in it. Yes. So the one mm-hmm. with Costner. Yeah, yeah. Yes. That's yes, not yes, bad. Yes. Yeah. 
He was in uh, Pearl Harbor. He played a presidential aide in 2001. Ugh. Yuck. Um, I, I, the movie does have its moments. I wouldn't say it's it's completely horrendous. It does, you know, it's 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 far from perfect. But uh, you know, he was also in the movie Transformers. He played the national deputy director of operations. He was in the oh. curious the curious case of Benjamin Button. He actually paid Benjamin for 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 part of the movie. Uh, there was there was a TV show that I really enjoyed him in in 2007 called Journeyman, Journeyman, which was uh, like a time travel type of uh, thing uh, show, but a, a a journalist who travels to the past and you know is able to alter people's lives and stuff like that it was with Kevin McKidd. Uh, it it only had 13 episodes, but but I really enjoyed it. I think it was a really fun uh, fun idea, and he played some top secret person there. You know, so yeah, he's he's had some some nice parts over the course of uh, of his career. In this movie, he doesn't have much to say except for what the, f- and I think later on he maybe has one other line or something like that. And and then the the uh, co-pilot responds and says, "What is it?" And the co-pilot's name is Stephen Smith Pershing, or Steve Steve Pershing, uh, who was born in 1949, so he was. 30 when this movie came out. Oh, wait, he was 30. No, he was 40. Sorry, he was 40 when, when this movie came out. He doesn't really have very many uh, IMDb credits. Uh, he only has uh, 10 IMDb credits. This was the second to last one that he had. Uh, I don't know if he's still alive or not. IMDb is not updated about that. Uh, hopefully he still is because he's only 70. So he's, he's 73 at this point. And... And then the, the navigator says, the outer marker beeper, it isn't beeping, it's talking. And then we see that he uh, you know, flips the switch. And first of all, I, this is an explanation dump for us. You know, He's doing a, a good job of explaining to us the difference. I mean, beforehand, Barnes said what he's going to do, but here we're actually hearing it happen, where instead yeah. of it just beeping, you know, it's now you can actually hear someone talking and then he flips the switch and everyone can now hear uh, both us and the pilot and co-pilot. And then we get a, a speech from, from Barnes where he goes, attention all aircraft in Dulles landing pattern. This is Chief Engineer Leslie Barnes. I've been authorized to brief you in full. At this time, this is the only channel available to us. Here's the situation. Approximately two hours ago. So first of all, uh, I, I like that that we actually find out who he is. You know, his name is Leslie Barnes. <laughs> are, are you familiar with the name Leslie? Yeah, it's a very common name here for you know people of our grandparents' generation. Um, Les, obviously, is the abbreviation. Um, is there a patron saint? Is there a Saint Leslie? I doubt it. No, um, no, no. Not that. Not that What's I'm. What's its origin? Okay. What, well, first of all, first of all, it's it's a. Uh, it's a gender neutral name, meaning it could be for either male or female. Mm-hmm. And it's a Scottish origin that uh-huh. means holly garden, which is an evergreen plant with bright red berries that grows all over Scotland. Um, it also refers to there is a castle in Scotland, a medieval castle known as Castle Leslie, uh, which is in uh, Abendir- Ab- Aberdeenshire. You know, so. Uh, that that's more or less what what Leslie means. It can be spelled numerous ways. It could be L E S L I E, L E S L E Y, 
Um, it's the variants also are like Laszlo and Leslie. Um, there, there's like a whole bunch of different things. I mean, I, I, I found like a really, really long list of, of people named Leslie. But there, there isn't anybody who like jumped out at me that this is a person that, that you know, because it's, it's both a male name, a female name, or it could also be a surname. So, you know, I have uh, the, the only one that really jumped out at me is Leslie Nielsen, who we, we mentioned yesterday, or maybe we mentioned, <laughs> wait, did we mention it yesterday fine. or we mentioned it, or did we mention it before, uh, or I was that in the green yesterday. room? I mentioned it yesterday about airplane. You must be resisting every guest making an airplane pun. Like even before when the co-pilot said, why, what is it? <laughs> After the guy said, what the beep? Yeah. Said, well, it's a, it's the act of co-mating with another member of the other sex, but that's not important right now. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Surely yeah, every guest has been making these jokes. So yeah, Leslie, there you go. That's true. Um, did you know that Bob Hope's real name was Leslie? No. His name was Leslie Timothy. Bob Hope. Oh, I do know yeah. he was born in England, wasn't he? Like Cary Grant, but uh, uh, yes, he was, he was born in England. England. Yes, he was born in England. Uh, Leslie Howard, mm-hmm. another uh, British actor. Uh, Leslie Jordan, who just passed away uh, uh, a few months ago. You know, he was an, he was a comedic actor. Maybe the so. name Leslie was chosen on purpose. Oh yeah, yeah. You mentioned Leslie Howard. He he was shot down in a plane too. I think. Yes. In World War yes, II. we yeah. talked about that. We talked about that. Uh, I think it was in week three when I think it was when when uh, Niall was on. I'm pretty ah. sure we talked about that when he was on. Yeah. Um, interesting. Such a sad story, isn't it? Yes. I think maybe there was a spy connection. Maybe he was also. Yes. They thought yeah. there, there there's suspicions. That there's a conspiracy theory that he was a spy, and that's why they uh, they did it. Um, you have an, an actress named uh, Leslie Ann Leslie Ann Warren, who was uh, very famous in in the eighties in a lot of different movies. Uh, she was in Clue. Yeah. She was in... yeah. Um, so yeah, Another I mean, airplane they're... connection. Yeah, she yes. was in Hanover Street with um with Harrison Ford. Obviously, right. played a played a pilot. Yeah. So there you go. It That's all comes right. back to aviation, man. <laughs> yeah, completely. Uh, so yeah, so we, we find out that his first name is Leslie, and now we know why everyone calls him Barnes. Uh, <laughs> and then the, the shot changes, but we're still, you know, in the same time frame, and we're back on the plane, and we see Victor and Thornburg uh, walking to the galley, and you saw a stewardess just leave the galley at the same time that they get there, and then Victor says, "Wait, where do you get a load of this?" And then, you know, he gives. He gives Thornburg, you know, an earpiece for him to listen in on. And we continue to hear what, what Barnes says. And he says, do not accept any instructions claiming to be from our tower unless you hear your own flight recorder access code. The terrorists have got all our systems. And yeah, this is something that I never paid attention to, you know, what he's actually saying when Thornburg is listening, because, you know, it's, 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 we hear it very, uh, it, the tone is very low where we can hear it. And, you know, it makes a lot of sense, but, but if, if the bad guys have taken over controls of everything and they know what flights are on, I mean, they had, they have all those little plastic sheets of each of the flights. They wouldn't have the, the, the flight recorder access code of each of the, of each of the planes. Or is this mm. more 
Or is this more for them to say, okay, this is going to be our code? So even though Stuart and his men know the code of using, you know, of, of they know the, the access code, but if, if they, you know, but they don't know that when they're speaking to the plane, they should say, okay, any A flight X access code, uh, one, two, three, four, you know, it's us in the tower. Maybe that's what it comes down to. It's like, you know, a code phrase to be using. Could you think that could be what it is? I'm inclined to agree with you, but the even going back to first principles, like the pilots must be so confused. Like perhaps this, maybe they know Barnes's voice. No, they wouldn't. But perhaps him, his message is the is the terrorist speaking. That could be also. So even if they did get the right code, yeah, I'd be I'd, as a pilot, I wouldn't necessarily be agreeing with or like believing everything Barnes is saying to begin with, anyway. Well, maybe the people yeah. in the plane know that only someone like Barnes would be able to tap into the outer marker beeper and instead of making it beep talk. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. You could rationalize it that way. I'm sure this conversation is happening in the cockpit now between uh, the pilot and the uh, navigator. Yeah, That's right. But they, you're right. They do take it too quickly at face value and believe everything that's being said. You know, maybe maybe that has to do with the fact that this takes place in a in a pre nine eleven world, meaning that if it were to be taking place now, then there would be much more suspicion. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Surely most of the planes have seen the other plane crash. Well, we talked about this a little bit last week. There's a lot of fog, and they're very high up, so maybe they didn't see it. You know, I mean, the the fact is, is that when the plane gets, the planes at the end of the movie get closer, then they're able to see the, you know, the, the flames from, from the other plane that, that's going to explode. So, I mean, I think that's a good enough explanation that from the height that they're flying, they actually cannot see the the plane. Yeah. The, or the, okay. the, the debris and the fire and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, with cloud cover or anything like that. I mean, first of all, it's a good thing that, that Victor actually was paying attention, you know, that he was listening to this beeping sound, which I'm assuming we, we talked about this, uh, you know, earlier. It must be really annoying for someone to have to constantly be listening to a beeping sound, you know, and that's what Victor was doing. You know, he might have wanted to listen to he was he was listening to his headphones beforehand. So, you know, he was possibly listening to some good, uh, you know, 80s or 90s music at the time, you know, and then Thornburg bugs him and tells him that he wants to start listening to this beeping sound. That is just constantly beeping every five seconds, ten seconds, whatever it is. You know, so I, I don't know. <laughs> but there's a know, bit it, of it still works. Yeah. Um, one thing I noticed on replaying this, um, there's a bit of movie time logic. Like Thornburg just listens to it for like three seconds before currently like getting up to speed of what's going on. Like even of course. before you hear the word terrorist, yeah. So. It's a bit of movie time logic there, which always right. makes me laugh. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, as soon as he hears the word terrorist, and then he turns to, to Victor and says, holy sh**, get this on tape. And, you know, I think, I, yeah, I love how Victor already has the tape out. He's he's already, you, now, you remember <laughs> beforehand, he pulled up a very large radio to be listening to here. And now he just has what looks like a walkman. You know, where's that big radio that he pulled out last week? 
Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Sir, you're going to have to stow that above your, your head. <laughs> no, but again, he's now listening on a, you know, Walkman and is able to record it. You know, and then we, we continue to hear Barnes say, and now have control of everything except this channel. So it goes back to, okay, they know everything about the, they control everything in the airport, but the one thing they can't control is the outer marker beeper, beacon, you know, that's what it is. And then the, the stewardess tries to push them away and get them out of the galley. And Thornburg says, give us a second here, please. At least he's being polite. You know, you got to give him credit for that because he's usually not. And then Barnes continues again, this channel is secure, but your own transmissions are not do not repeat, do not, uh, and then he gets cut off with what he's trying to, to say. You know, so, I mean, it, it's very interesting that, I mean, it goes back to what you said before. How do the pilots know that this is authentic? You know, and the fact yeah. that Barnes is telling them, don't acknowledge just because then the other will say it. So it, it can work the other way too. Think about it. If, if it was Stuart who was doing this and he was the one sending out, uh, you know, giving this information to the pilots. And then he were to say, if you hear from anybody else, just ignore them because, you know, I'm the real person. It, I mean, just mind boggling thinking about the whole thing. Because it could go it anyway, either way. That a, exactly, it could go either way. It makes me think the aviation authority probably has a contingency for this, like pilots having really unique passwords or something that only they know before a flight or or something direct from the tower you'd like to know there's some sort of but, system but each tower you know you, you have thousands of towers around the country you know you if if yeah. you want to try and keep something like that secret you can't say you know to everyone okay my code name is batman you know and everyone knows <laughs> that that you know when when uh, when john is flying you know then the code is batman and when, uh, you know, when Nile is flying, then the code is uh, Superman. No offense, Nile. And <laughs> I should have thought that one through a little further, a little earlier and used, used the Batman for him. But whatever. That's, you know, just as, as the example. I, I think it would have worked that way. So I don't know. Yeah. Still, I'd like to think there's some, there's some sort of... Anyway, I, the fact that I can't think of the top of my head doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but some other some other level of protection um, to what a pilot should do if he receives a message that he thinks is suspicious or how to confirm it. Anyway, well, I, I think that, that I think that is what they tried doing in in on nine eleven. You know, the fact that they sent messages to you know to all all the planes telling them that there have been you know, cockpit breaches. And, you know, if, if you've ever seen the movie United 93, which which is a favorite of mine, it's it's very difficult to watch, but I still watch it over and over because it's so powerful. And, you know, they, the, the, the pilot and co-pilot pretty much scoff at the idea, you know, that, that it's possible that there's a hijack and that, you're, that you should be careful not to let anybody into the cockpit, you know. And, you know, now post 9-11, people look at that and think of it very differently. Yeah. So, yeah. And then basically the, the minute ends as Thornburg is motioning to Victor for something, you know, like maybe he's asking for a pen or paper or, or something. 
bag of peanuts. Chris already got one. Could be. No, that that will get. Uh, we'll we'll talk about that tomorrow. The bag of peanuts. <laughs> All right. So you have anything else you want to say about this minute before we get into the the script? Um, I think in one of the earlier minutes, the air stewardess really give, puts him in his place, doesn't he? Doesn't she? And mentions how that 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 uh, article about bimbos in the sky or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so they're a bit more assertive. But I suppose here he's polite enough, so she just goes away. That was one of my notes. Where, yeah. Where's the uh, where's the confident and sassy and um, and and uh, yeah, assertive stewardess that we saw a few minutes ago? Um, yeah, that's no big thing. And also notice there's a can of V8 juice in one of the earlier seconds. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know. Well, growing up, that was like a real exotic uh, drink when it was on the first on the market here in Australia. Well, I remember like, they had they had commercials about V8. Ah, was that the beast? Was that really exotic when it came out in the late eighties or whatever? Because in Australia, I, I believe it was. Then. Yeah. And it just, yeah, it just got me thinking how these movies were magical as a young kid. Like, there's so many American products that we'd only see on films or on TV shows, like, um, like in the Goonies, you've got Domino's Pizza that he has. You know what I mean? It's all like ex- right. this exotic mm-hmm. stuff. Like, wow. And so you'd see a movie like this, and you say, wow, but you can make a phone call on an on an American plane. And I mean, maybe you could have done that on an Australian plane. I don't know, but like just the exotic world of pop culture that these sort of movies explain. So I thought, oh, V8, you know, that's that's something I'd see in a movie. And uh, anyway, I don't know where I'm really going with this point, yeah. Rob, but I'm no, saying no. that some things... No, are, I, some things I you completely see, agree with you. Some things you might see like, eh, it's just a what? It's just a it's just a wrapper, a candy bar or a Palomar or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's quite exotic. When I was no, that, that's why we talk about these things, you know. And, uh, you know, I'm glad you brought it up. So a V8 is a a uh, juice that was made from eight different vegetables, a mixture of vegetables and fruits. And they, they started mm. making them in 1948. It's owned by the oh, uh, wow. Campbell Stoop Company. Oh. And so it was, it was it's known as a V8 because of the fact that it has eight different vegetables that are being used in it. The, the vegetables are beets, celery, carrots, lettuce, parsley, watercress, spinach, and tomato. They've obviously mm. made a whole bunch of different variations of that over the years. So it's not exactly the same thing. I mentioned before about the fact that I remember the commercials. So the, the slogan for V8 in the 70s was, should have had a V8. You know, it was, it was I, if I remember correctly, it was, it was like they'd have commercials with people who, who don't have enough strength to do something. And therefore, you know, they, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember like what they had, what they had to do. But the the idea was is that they they needed to do something and and they say oh too bad I sh- I should I could have had a V8 and it would have it would have given me more strength to do what I wanted to do you know that type <laughs> of thing. Well, I hope John McLean's had one. He's he's going to need one next next few minutes, next half hour. No, uh, yeah, that's true. It, it would help him, but but I don't think he's going to be able to get the one on the plane. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Burned up on impact. Yeah. Well, no, not yet. But uh, you know, no, but it's on this plane that hasn't that hasn't crashed yet. We'll see. You know, we'll see. It's, it's, it's running out of fuel. It's yet. slowly running out of fuel, but 
but we'll have less to see than two hours there. Yes, yeah. that's right. So basically, the the script the script is pretty much word for word. You know, the one thing it tells us that that uh, Victor has everything on a micro cassette recorder, um, and that's it. You know, everything that that they basically say is, is word for word here. So there are no differences in the script. Yeah. So every Tuesday we have a segment called Disaster Tuesday, where you know we we we, we talk a little bit about some sort of uh, aircraft disaster that, that that happened. And what I try and do is try and find something that's somehow closely related to uh, to my guest. You know, so I was trying oh. to you know to try and find something that that would fit for 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 you, John. And mm. do you, have you ever heard of someone by the name of Byron Kennedy? Yes, the producer who producer of Mad Max it was George Miller's buddy, and he died in a plane, didn't he? Yes, yep. he did. Yes, he did. He was thirty three years old, and it happened on the seventeenth of July, nineteen eighty three. All right, he actually, at the age of eighteen, formed his own production company, and uh, produced a whole bunch of amateur short films. Uh, you know, in, in a short period of time. In 1970, he won the uh, Kodak Trophy, which is Australia's uh, top best on eight for the short film Hobson's Bay, which was a documentary about the Melbourne port, uh, the, the Melbourne suburb of uh, Williamstown. And That's by fun. getting money for this, he was able to, to start, uh, you know, traveling around the world and doing other things. He met George Miller in university in 1969. Uh, They were in the University of Melbourne together. They made a film together uh, called Violence in the the Cinema, which won uh, international acclaim. And they they created a uh, company called uh, Kennedy Miller, which they incorporated in 1975 with the two of them as uh, co-directors. Their first major movie together was what you mentioned earlier, Mad Max, which came out in 1979. Um, and the film set a record for the highest grossing film re- relative to the budget. That it took 20 years for another movie to break that that record. And that was the Blair Witch Project that did it in 1999. Uh-huh. He also produced Mad Max 2, which grossed over $100 million uh, worldwide in 1981. In 1983, when he was only 33 years old, he was killed at the Warragamba Dam in New, New South Wales, uh, where the helicopter that he was piloting actually crashed. Now, what happened was, is that he was flying uh, 10 feet above the ground, and he hit the water with the rear of the skids when he was attempting to, to climb. And therefore, the uh, the, the the helicopter lost traction and I guess crashed because of that. Mm. And uh, so obviously it was it's known as a pilot error. You know, it's not something there was there was apparently nothing faulty with with the helicopter itself, but he himself was. Uh, I, I I wonder if he was there trying to, you know, scope out like a uh, you know location or something like that. You know, flying because he's flying over around a dam. You know, on a helicopter, and yeah. you don't normally fly that close to the ground, unless, it, or maybe he was just going for a little, uh, 
you know, quiet time away from other people. Yeah, and that's a sad story. So young. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it really is. Mm. I'm, I'm glad you actually knew who he was. And we've <laughs> all learned, learned a little bit more about who Byron Kennedy was. All right. So, John, you want to once again tell people where they can find that, where they can find you? DirtyHarryMinute.com. Website has all the links to, you know, um, uh, the podcast and how to contact us. Yeah. All right. Excellent. And finding me is very simple. Just do a quick search for Move Around Minute. You can find me on my website, MoveAroundMinute.com. You can find me on Facebook and you can find me on Twitter. So until tomorrow, yippee-ki-yay. Yippee-ki-yay, mother chucker. If you're fond of sand dunes and salty air, quaint little villages, here. 